Lord. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals in a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So we began this study of Elijah's life several weeks ago, and I've entitled it Faith During Famine because we understand that famine is any type of great shortage whenever you're in a situation where you don't have enough of what you need. And throughout Elijah's life, the one thing that stands out is he is often dealing with circumstances in which there is a spiritual shortage around him. He himself may not be uh, dealing with a lack of faith, but the community and the people with whom he is working often struggled to possess faith. Throughout this study of Elijah's life, we've, we've examined occasions where he has dealt with spiritual tests, where he has endured uh, time out in the wilderness We've seen where he's even had to deal with tragedy when that widow's son died. There have been many challenges he has faced spiritually. And it's so very fascinating because Elijah's story is one of a spiritual hero. Someone who stands out in the Old Testament as one of the most significant individuals and significant leaders throughout the whole text. But it's also a story of someone who is just like you and me. We've referenced many times that statement that appears in James chapter 5, where it tells us that Elijah was a man just like us. And maybe today's lesson makes that more relevant than ever. Because as we journey through today's study here from 1 Kings chapter 19, the thing that stands out is that Elijah goes through a period of despair. Now I want you to think in context. 1 Kings chapter 18, the chapter that precedes today's study, Elijah has this successful prophetic ministry that climaxes in 1 Kings chapter 18 with that contest at Mount Carmel. That contest in which he led the charge to defend God against Baal and Baal's prophets. 
And as a result of his efforts there at Mount Carmel, Baal was shown to be powerless. His prophets were executed, and the Israelites were once again proclaiming, The Lord, He is God. And so we're at this moment in Elijah's life where everything seems right, where everything seems like it's the way it should be. It's everything Elijah could ask for. It's the greatest spiritual moment in his ministry. But the reality is that nobody gets to stay on the mountaintop forever. And such is the case when we read the events that followed Mount Carmel. I know we just read, but look again at 1 Kings chapter 19 with me. And pay attention to what unfolds here in these first five verses. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now you have to remember, Jezebel's the one that brought the prophets into the picture. She's the one who has financed all these prophets. It's her religion that Ahab has adopted. And now Ahab is reporting to her that her religion is defeated. Verse 2, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. What Jezebel is doing is she's threatening Elijah. She's saying, I'm so mad at you right now because you have made me look bad, and you have conquered my, adopt- my religion that I have brought into Israel, and now I'm going to execute you just like you executed my prophets. She has issued a death threat to Elijah. Now, I'm not so sure she could follow through on that very well because the whole nation just converted back to worshiping Yahweh. She's not going to get a lot of support on this. But regardless of whether or not this was an empty threat or a real threat, Elijah felt threatened because in verse 3 we're told he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. So Elijah, through the power of God, just orchestrated the greatest spiritual victory in Israel, quite possibly since David defeated Goliath. And what does he do next? What's the very next thing he does after he has this great victory? He runs for his life because he's afraid of what Jezebel might do to him. And Elijah's story reminds us that sometimes the lowest lows come after the highest highs. And I think that's the case because the enemy, the enemy as in Satan, he knows knows believers are often most susceptible to a spiritual attack right after a spiritual victory. And despite the success at Mount Carmel, Elijah succumbs to tremendous despair here. I think it's because even though his side won, his enemies, particularly Ahab and Jezebel, still reigned. And in that moment, from Elijah's perspective, his future still looked bleak. You ever been there? You ever been in the shoes of Elijah and and despite good things that are happening, you still felt stuck in a situation of despair because the future just looked bleak. See, this is where I think we really connect with Elijah. 
A lot of us don't want to admit it, but we've gone through times where we were hopeless. And some of us are in one of those times right now. We know what despair is. Despair is the complete loss or absence of hope. We know what despair is because on so many occasions we've been there. Despair is that state of hopelessness you enter when you are overwhelmed with negative emotions and as a result you are no longer able to see how things are going to improve simply because your perspective has been tainted. And despair can be caused by many factors, but more often than not, it derives from two major factors. I'm not saying these are the only ones, but these are two primary factors and contributors to despair. One is that despair may be the result of, of biology. And what I mean is that God designed our bodies to produce this chemical called serotonin. And serotonin is a neurotransmitter that helps us regulate anxiety and happiness and mood. Sometimes the body doesn't produce enough of this chemical and low levels of serotonin have been associated with depression. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm not even a licensed counselor. But what we need to realize is that sometimes our seasons of despair are the result of a biochemical situation that may need to be addressed with a physician. And I'm just trying to acknowledge the reality of that. For many of us, though, despair is the result of circumstance. And what I mean is that despair comes as a result of life situations, of life experiences, of events that are negative. And we may be the initiators of such circumstances through our poor choices and our rebellious spirit, but it's also possible that we're the victims of such circumstances. And our despair is brought on by unfortunate events over which we had no control, such as the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, or a scary medical diagnosis. See, despair can come as a result of multiple factors. But the real question is, does my experience of despair constitute a sin? See, there's a popular myth that Christians should never feel bad. And we propagate this myth. You know how? Because when we come to the church building, we have an answer for the question, how are you? And if you don't say the correct answer, you're not really a Christian. You know what that answer is? Here, how are you? See, you're a good Christian. You know the answer to the question. We are fine people, and we say that all the time. It's programmed in you. You may have just got out of your car and had one of the worst fights with your spouse on the way to worship, but when you walk in that door, you smile and say, I'm fine. You may have just scolded your kids and, and, and chewed them out on the car right here, but you're getting out of that car and everything's fine. You may have just lost your job, but you're getting out of that car and everything's fine. We love the word fine. But everything's not always fine. See, we act as though 
Christians should never experience periods of despair. But that's a fallacy. Because despair happens. As one preacher said, being discouraged does not mean that you are carnal. It means that you are normal. Unfortunately, the weaknesses of our mortal bodies and the state of this fallen world have the ability to undermine our ability to thrive in hope. And when you go to the Bible, you'll discover that several biblical heroes encountered despair. Think about David for a moment. David experienced despair. There was this period of his life between the conquest of Goliath and the, his ascent to the throne. And during that period, even though he had been anointed the next king of Israel, and even though he had conducted himself with integrity all of those days, and even though he faithfully served King Saul, he spent those prime years of his life seeking shelter in caves, sacrificing his most significant relationships, and living like a fugitive of the state, all because Saul was jealous of him. And in the midst of that period of his life, he writes these words in Psalm chapter 69 and verse 20. He says, Reproaches have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. David experienced despair and even said it. In addition to David, there's Jeremiah the prophet. He experienced despair. God called Jeremiah to be his prophet, but it was not an easy assignment. His prophetic ministry brought him into conflict with kings and priests and false prophets. And as a result, he was subject to constant persecution, including death threats, beatings, and multiple imprisonments. On one occasion recorded in Jeremiah chapter 38, he was thrown into an empty cistern where he was left to starve to death. And as a result of such persecutions, Jeremiah experienced deep despair that is best communicated in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 17. Where he says, I have forgotten what happiness is. Jeremiah experienced despair. And even the great apostle Paul had moments of despair. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, he mentioned the affliction that he and his companions experienced while they were in Asia. And he said that that, that affliction was so great that he despaired of life itself. Now, I don't exactly know what that affliction was, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 27, Paul gives a list of all the things he endured, all the negative experiences he had faced. These included multiple imprisonments, countless beatings, attempted executions, five floggings, three beatings with rods, a stoning, three shipwrecks, as well as a night and a day adrift at sea. In addition to those experiences, experiences. He endured frequent travel, danger from the elements, as well as danger from people, sleepless nights, starvation, dehydration, and exposure. Needless to say, Paul endured some of the most debilitating circumstances any missionary could imagine. And by comparison, that affliction in Asia 
is the one that he described as causing him to despair of life itself. These are biblical heroes that acknowledged and confessed their despair. And the presence of such examples in Scripture indicates that experiencing despair is not abnormal and therefore not sinful in and of itself. But we do need to make a distinction here. Because even though dealing with despair is not a sin, dwelling in it can be. That's because despair is an attribute of the lost, not the saved. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul indicated that those outside of Christ are not only separated from Christ, but also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, Paul indicated that those who are outside of Christ are hopeless. But then you can go over to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, where Peter said that those who are in Christ have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter's point is that those who are in Christ are hopeful because Jesus is alive and one day we'll get to join him. And my point is this. You're going to experience times of despair. That's normal. It's not sinful, but it is normal. But how you deal with that despair can have a huge impact on your faith. And Scripture indicates that because we are in Christ, we shouldn't give in to despair. We should be able to overcome it because we were born again to a living hope. And this morning, what I want to do with the rest of our time, I know we stepped away from Elijah for a good bit there, but I want to return to Elijah's story because I believe in Elijah's story, we're given a recipe, if you will, for how to defeat despair. At least we can find four things we can do to help in overcoming our despair. And so return to 1 Kings chapter 19 with me. And let's take a moment to look at what Elijah did or was instructed to do in order to defeat despair. And the first thing I want you to notice that is that in order to defeat despair, you need to communicate with God. Notice what Elijah said after he fled Carmel for Bathsheba. It's in verses 4 and 5 of 1 Kings chapter 19. We're told that he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Now, this verse does not specific, specify any instructions that God gave Elijah. But it does reveal an important step in overcoming despair, and that is the step of communication. Elijah was honest and transparent with God. He communicated how he felt and why he felt that way. And I don't sense that God was bothered by Elijah's prayer. 
And I don't think God was bothered by Elijah's prayer because Scripture instructs us to not only pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, but also to pray about everything in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Have you noticed how much we've talked about prayer in the life of Elijah? Just about every week, there's a little snippet of a message on prayer. Last week's lesson was entirely about prayer. Because that was Elijah's greatest weapon. As he dealt with spiritual famine all around him, as he fought to keep that from creeping into his own life, prayer was his go-to. And even now, in his greatest depths of despair, prayer is his default. You see, God wants us to communicate even in our moments of despair because he is the one who knows exactly what is needed in response to our prayers. Think about that for a moment. God knows what you need at all times. So he already knows what the answer to the prayer needs to be. Think about Elijah's prayer life for just a moment. When Elijah prayed for God not to send any rain, God didn't send any rain. When Elijah prayed for God to raise up a dead boy, God raised up the dead boy. When Elijah prayed for God to send down fire from heaven, God sent down fire. When Elijah prayed for God to make it rain again, God made it rain again. But when Elijah prayed for God to take his life, God didn't take his life. Because God knows exactly what is needed in every situation. He knew that that wasn't the correct answer to Elijah's situation. And we pray because prayer is our way of acknowledging that we need God's help. That we recognize His authority to act and that we want His will to be done. And so when you're dealing with despair, don't skip this step. Don't ignore this step. Don't forget this step. You need to communicate with God. You need to be honest and transparent about what you're going through. And in addition to that, you may need to seek a time of refreshment. Picking up the story in verse, at the end of verse 5 in 1 Kings 19, Read with me through verse 8. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So the, the first instruction that Elijah receives from the Lord has to do with eating a meal and taking a nap. Don't you wish you got more of those instructions from God? I think we could all be obedient to those instructions. But the reason God gave those instructions in this moment with Elijah is because he knew that's one thing Elijah needed in this time of despair. God is the originator of rest. 
having rested on the seventh day himself and having instituted the Sabbath day under Mosaic law. God is the originator of rest. He knew in Elijah's case that his despair resulted in his need for refreshment. Jesus even knew that about his apostles on one occasion. There was a moment in the ministry of Jesus just before the feeding of the 5,000 that the apostles had returned from going out in the countryside and, and sharing the good news. And Jesus says in Mark chapter 6 and verse 31, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He instructed them to join him for a retreat so they could rest. You see, regardless of whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you can see times when God recognized man's need to rest. And here's the thing about rest. Rest is a demonstration of our trust in and reliance on God. When we rest, we surrender control to the Lord by intentionally refraining from active control. In other words, when we rest, we are essentially proclaiming that everything is going to be okay without our involvement because we trust that God's in control. David realized this. He wrote Psalm chapter 3 while he was fleeing from his son Absalom, who was trying to overthrow his kingdom. And in Psalm chapter 3 and verse 5, David said, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. And what David did there is he acknowledged that his ability to rest during these turbulent times of his life was because the Lord took care of him. So our rest can function as an expression of our trust in and reliance on the one who grants us rest. And it may be that as you deal with despair, that what you need to do is take some time to rest. Because your body and your soul are intricately connected. Because God recognizes that. Maybe not only do you need to communicate with God, but maybe you need to rest. But that's not the end of the story. Because as we continue looking at the life of Elijah, we see that he also needed to hear a different perspective. So look again at the text of 1 Kings 19 and go down to verse 9 with me. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in, a, in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. 
And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, jump down to verse 18, the Lord said to him, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. It appears that Jezebel's death threat had somehow caused Elijah to lose his divine perspective. So God led Elijah to a cave to correct his poor thinking. And God accomplished this by doing two things. First, he reminded Elijah of the past. And then second, he pointed him toward the future. Let me tell you about the past for a moment. I think when God brought that wind and that earthquake and that fire, what he was doing was reminding Elijah of his power. Through the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, God reminded Elijah that he is the one who brought creation into existence. And therefore, all of it is under his jurisdiction. But, not, but on top of that, he also reminded Elijah that he is the one who can use such destructive forces to judge those who oppose him. Such was the case with the flood. Such was the case with Sodom and Gomorrah, with Egypt, with the enemy nations of Israel in the land of Canaan. So God put on full display his might to remind Elijah that he can and will judge those who oppose him. And yet God ultimately communicated to Elijah via a whisper, as if to signify that he can accomplish great things even through the smallest and quietest of actions. Maybe the whisper was symbolic of Elijah himself. The lone, small voice still standing for God. And God's trying to show him that he can still do great things with him. But God didn't just discuss the past or demonstrate the past. He also pointed to the future. After giving Elijah an opportunity to express his despair again, God pointed out that there were 7,000 people in Israel who were still on his team. People who needed Elijah to lead them. And as one preacher said, it's as if God is telling Elijah that he doesn't need him on the sidelines. He needs him back in the game. Because even though Elijah may not be able to see it from his vantage point, God's team is going to win. And so God has Elijah on this mountain, at this cave, and he's saying, look at the past. I can still judge. And now I want you to look at the future. You're not alone. God is giving Elijah a different perspective of the situation. And, and here's what I want you to take away from this. You cannot help the way you feel but you can always control the way you think. In order to defeat despair, Elijah needed a new perspective, a new way of thinking about the situation. 
And sometimes that's the most important step. I think that's why Scripture provides instructions about our thinking processes. Like Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, which says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's an instruction regarding what your mind should think about. And of course, there's also Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, which says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. It's an instruction to adopt a heavenly perspective on all matters. And I think the point of Scripture is this. That in order to maintain the right perspective, you have to feed your mind the right source material. And God's Word is the ultimate source for a different perspective on any and every matter. For Elijah, God's Word was audibly spoken. For us, it's physically held. Either way, it has the potential to change our perspective to give us a new way of thinking. And as we combat despair, that might just be what we need. And I said there were four things we can learn from Elijah, four steps we can take, four elements to this recipe. So let's turn our attention to the last. And that is, in order to combat despair, you need to surround yourself with uplifting people. Let's finish our reading, 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Meholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what, I, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. What does all this have to do with despair? When we suffer from despair, it's very easy for us to choose to isolate ourselves. But you know what? That's probably one of the worst things you can do. Because when you isolate yourself in despair, what you inevitably do is wallow in self-pity. Or, if you're not wallowing in self-pity, you may choose self-absorption. And neither of those are good for you. I think that's why part of God's remedy for despair is community. Think about how much of Elijah's ministry he's been by himself. He spent three years 
wandering alone in the wilderness. He stood alone on Mount Carmel, and he just fled to a cave where he was hiding by himself. But when it came time for Elijah to emerge from his despair, God instructed him to assemble a team. To anoint Hazael, the king over Syria. To anoint Jehu, the king over Israel. To recruit Elisha to be the next prophet. God understands that in order for us to defeat despair, we can't do it alone. So he provides instructions all throughout the Bible for us to develop intimate relationships with other believers, such as the case in Romans 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. An instruction that implies there's going to be intimacy between one another in the body of Christ. Not only that, but... God provides instructions for us to develop accountable relationships with other believers. James chapter 5 and verse 16 instructs us to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. The idea being that we have someone that we acknowledge our error to. Someone who goes to God on our behalf. And God provides instructions for us to develop uplifting relationships with other believers. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, where it says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's an instruction to encourage one another, to uplift one another, so that sin doesn't take hold. And then God provides instructions for us to develop relationships with other believers that strengthen us, such as the case in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, where we're instructed to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you know what I just did? I just summarized a series of lessons we did earlier this year called anothering. If you haven't listened to them, go back and listen to them. Because all throughout the Bible, we're instructed to do things with and for one another because we share the same faith. And the whole idea lying behind it is that we are stronger in community than we are individually. And when it comes to fighting off despair, it's going to take community. So you need to surround yourself with uplifting people. Today we talk about a subject that can be very personal, very difficult, very sensitive. Because we don't like to admit when we're dealing with despair. We don't want to acknowledge those moments of hopelessness. Because we've been trained to say, I'm fine. But you may not be fine. And I want you to know today that that if you're not fine, that's not abnormal. Some of the greatest heroes of Scripture weren't fine at times. And I want you to know today that if you're not fine, you have a body of believers here, you have Christians here who aren't fine either. They know what it's like to not be fine. And they're willing to pray for you. They're willing to uplift you. They're willing to support you. I came across in my 
preparation for today's lesson, a, uh, a bit of research that was done in the 1950s that would be considered unethical today. A professor at John Hopkins University wanted to uh, do a little bit of research in the arena of hope. So what he did is he gathered some lab rats and he filled up some jars halfway full with water. And one by one, he'd place rats in those jars and see how long they would swim until they drowned. When he initially started the experiment, they didn't survive too long, a few minutes, a few hours. He decided to tweak the experiment a little bit. And so when he, would, uh, he or his uh, associates would uh, notice a rat who was nearing the point of giving up, they would reach down, pick the rat up, and hold him for a little while before placing him back in the jar. And what he discovered is that brief moment of rescue, that brief period in which all did not seem lost, gave them hope to keep swimming. And they swam substantially longer than the other rats. And he concluded his research by saying, after eliminating hopelessness, the rats don't die anymore. What I want you to take away today is this. There is one who eliminated hopelessness for you. His name is Jesus. And he did it by going to the cross. And right now, you don't have to be hopeless anymore. And your hope status ultimately hinges on whether or not you are in Christ. So if you've not made that decision to confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, to repent of your sins and to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, then right now you can do that, and that's where your hope is found. This morning, if you find yourself hopeless, won't you bring it to the one who gives hope? We invite you to do that while together we stand and sing. Thank you.